0: Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us—the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Rev. Ashley Dargai, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus— the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you. Our
1: scripture for today is from Revelation 5. It is best to read Revelation as one entity, from beginning to end, in one sitting. We're not going to do that today. Maybe one church service will do that next Halloween. But this text is unlike most texts that we read together. So I want to say a few things before we read it. First, it is an apocalyptic text, which means it's dramatic with its symbolic imagery. And it's from a book that has been wildly misinterpreted by many. We don't really read a lot of apocalyptic literature together. Advent always begins with an apocalyptic text from a gospel, but otherwise we mostly stay clear of books like Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation, in part because our strain of Protestantism doesn't really like to tread much into that stuff. It feels dangerous and spooky, but on a day like today, perhaps a little spooky is what we need. Halloween feels like a good day for goosebumps. Second... Revelation is not only apocalyptic literature, but it's also a letter, and it's not a letter to us. Just like 1 Corinthians is not a letter to us, but a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, Revelation is a letter to Christians in Rome from what has been traditionally attributed to John. Now, of course, 1 Corinthians still mediates God's word to us, but not in the way that it did to the original readers. And so with Revelation. It's not for us, but as Christians, we can experience God through this mysterious text. And I take comfort in the fact that those Roman Christians probably did not find Revelation to be any any more coherent than we will. However, they were a lot more open to the wily genre of the apocalyptic. You know, they didn't need one-for-one literalism or a decoder ring. They knew that God could be experienced just as readily in the form of a seven-eyed lamb dripping with blood or a bowl filled with the prayers of dead people as in a quaint story about Jesus feeding people on the hillside. And third, John follows in the tradition of the biblical prophets, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, culturally, we tend to think of prophecy as predicting the future, a supernatural gift of the occult. But that's not how prophecy functions in the Bible. Prophecy is about interpreting one's present in light of the movement of God. So for example, the events of history can be interpreted with this-worldly explanations. The wind that drove back the marshy waters of the Red Sea could have been seen as a lucky break for the Israelites in the form of extreme weather. But it was the prophet Moses who interpreted this event as the mighty act of God that delivered Israel from Egypt and made them into God's people. And likewise here, the images we will read together are not meant to predict the future, but rather to provoke, to invoke, to evoke. To vocare is the Latin root, which means to call out to the unsettled in our hearts, in our church, in our world. The images do not lay things plain nearly as often as they stir things up. And all all apocalyptic literature operates from a framework of duality. So black or white, yes or no, this or that, this kind of view of the world. And obviously, we know that there are many shades of gray in the world and in our lives, and it's that knowledge that helps us lament the polarization of our culture, because we know that rarely things are clear cut. However, the drama of duality is not meant to be like a documentary commentary of our culture or our lives, but instead to plunge us into a magical, terrifying world. Think Alice in Wonderland. To see our world with renewed imagination. The apocalyptic gives our imagination new vocabulary. Okay, caveats made. The text is on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll, written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven, or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, singing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing. To the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I grew up in a world obsessed with the end times. Very soon, maybe this very minute, Jesus would come and collect his people and the world would have a few Christianless years left and then burn up into oblivion. Who cares about the earth because Christians would be riding first class in the Jesus-mobile? But as a kid, not yet given the gift of skepticism, I worried that Jesus would come back while I slept and my parents would disappear in the middle of the night and I'd be left behind I was afraid to go to sleep, lest I wake to find that I was, in fact, not a real Christian and now left to fend for myself in the end days. It was an effective narrative for scaring some into the ranks of true Christians. But the fire and brimstone urgency and the call to trust in Jesus because the world was coming to an end unintentionally gave way to a lack of urgency in the tangible ways that the world was actually ending. You know what I'm talking about. The rapid extinction of species, the filling of oceans with trash and oil, the warming of the climate, the melting ice caps, the starving polar bears, the unchecked deterioration of hope in progress along lines of gender, race, sexuality, and disability. These problems all rode in the backseat of the message of Jesus. And sometimes they didn't even get to ride in the backseat. They had to ride in the trunk, or the trailer, or the car behind it. Or sometimes they even had to catch a bus on their own tab. (laughs) But what we know clearly today, what our world leaders are discussing right now, is that our world is warming at an alarming rate. And those at the bottom of our economic ladder suffer the most and quickest. And I don't know about you, but some, ta- some days it feels a little silly to be singing about hope. You know, these days I still stay up at night thinking about the world ending, but in a different way. John Green, a popular writer and devout Episcopalian, shares my generation's despair about climate change. And he wrote in his most recent book, part of our fears about the world, about the world ending must stem from the strange reality that each of us, for each of us, our world will end. And soon. And he jokes, maybe it's just our narcissism as a species. Maybe he's right, I don't know. But in our valid angst about the world ending, we are also confronting the reality that the world has always been ending. We die, our beloveds die, our homes get sold to the highest bidder, our traditions fade away, a pandemic steals precious time away from us the world as we know it is always ending faster than we can keep up. In compounding our anxiety about mortality is our American culture. Our particular brand of modernity is always telling us that infinity is around the corner. It's at the bottom of our inbox, or maybe the bottom of our stack of self-help books, or the recesses of our Roth IRA account. It whispers the spells of productivity, efficiency, progress. We're offered elixirs and potions that promise us we can be young forever, successful forever, agents of our own perfectibility and stability. So it's even harder to deal with catastrophic ending head-on because, be it climate change or death, Because we're always being sold the idea that we will never die. That there is more than enough for everyone's greed. Even as the collateral damage of that narrative piles higher and higher every day. The prophetic voices of scripture were speaking to people living in the Iron Age who were used to burying beloveds far more frequently than we are. So perhaps they still offer us something of real value. And so, apocalyptic literature, like the one we read today, gives us a way to come at a few of these tender things sideways. We can look at some things peripherally before we face them head on. We can scoot into the conversation. So let's step into our apocalyptic vision now. Don't worry. We'll go together and we won't stay long. There are a few mystical creatures in our text today. Our mighty angel probably did not have dainty wings like the ones I wore earlier. And there are undescribed creatures, so it's up to your imagination what they look like. But most affronting is the lamb with seven eyes and seven horns dripping with blood as if it had been slaughtered like a horror movie. And the lamb enters the story because the mighty angel is looking around because the one on the throne with a scroll in his hand is wondering if there is someone worthy to open it. This is a question that's been asked in scripture before. Is there anyone worthy? In this case, no, there isn't. And John weeps at this fact. And we won't get into what the scroll says because that's outside of our purview this morning, but it's end-of-the-world stuff for a people in crisis, so not just anybody can read it. And no one is worthy anyway. That is until the lamb enters. But the Alice in Wonderland twist is that it's not a lamb we're looking for because the elders have said, Behold, the Lion of Judah, a conqueror. So when we turn our heads with John in his vision, we are looking for the king of the Pride Lands, the mighty predator of the plains. But we are shocked to see that instead, a lowly prey stands there, a prey who looks as if it's been hunted by our expected predator. And this is the one who is worthy to open the scroll, which feels in contradiction to how we sometimes think of the end of the world. It's certainly different than the end times stuff I grew up with. I mean, we might have assumed that in the case which comes first, the lion or the lamb, the lamb would come first. Love would be a provisional strategy of the earthly Jesus to accomplish God's purposes. But eventually, when everyone had had their chance and love had not worked, The transcendent, dreadful violence of the lion would replace it and take care of God's business. But that's not what this vision implies. The lamb does not accomplish God's purposes by killing others, but by being killed by others. And this goes against all respectable virtues and understandings of how the world works. And if John had any question about what he was seeing, this image of the slain lamb is affirmed by four creatures, 24 elders who were holding in their hands bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So they've got the backing of every single person who's ever lived. And then more creatures and more elders and more angels that numbered myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. And they're all singing, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered, to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and power, etc. And of course, you know, we want to be careful not to attempt to solve this vision like a puzzle, because it's not a puzzle. But our minds are meant to be puzzled, to search for God in the fog of it, And just as the original receivers of revelation could encounter God in the jarring and mysterious language of the apocalyptic, so can we. Tomorrow, we will celebrate All Saints Day together. We will light candles and take communion with a special eye on the aspect of the table that extends across the threshold of death. We will use rituals and ceremony to remember the ones we can't forget anyway. We will proclaim our faith that death, what feels like the ultimate separation, what feels like a fearsome lion waiting to pounce, is actually, somehow, a revealer of life and love that something as affronting and absurd as a slain lamb is somehow a harbinger of hope. I loved Jenna's sermon last week. There were all these nuggets of beauty, and if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen on the podcast because it was beautiful. But one thing she said was that in the beginning, when it was just the Trinity, we were made in love. For love, by love, in love, with love. Love was the beginning of us all. And here, eons later, on an earth that groans with warning signs and last-ditch efforts to save itself, even here, in our moments of despair, whether they be our own end, the end of our loved ones, or the end of our world, there is love still. We are in fact bookended by love. It hems us in front and from behind. It tucks us in tightly the way that I tuck my daughter in at night. It is as sealed as the scroll the one on the throne holds and is open to us all by the only one worthy to open it. And the prayers of the saints waft over us like incense. Reminding us of the absurdity of love, of a love that transcends death, that knows no ending, whose resilience is paradoxically predicated on our own fragility, our own delicate tethers to one another and to life. This love is strong because it is so very tender. It knows no end because it has truly known ending. And it is not scared of what we are scared of because it has known the scariest thing of all. So may we catch the whiff of the prayers of the saints, the saints we will remember tomorrow that tell us that the end
0: looks like love. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church podcast. Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.